Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 8. As Bible readers, we tend to experience chapters 8 through 10 as a bit of an interruption. Up until this point, Leviticus has felt like a book of laws. But now all of a sudden, we have this three-chapter narrative that somehow feels out of place. But in fact, it isn't out of place, as we shall soon see. There's far more history and narrative in the book of Leviticus than the first seven chapters will have led us to believe. The events described are not merely the setting for the laws that are given. That's important for us to understand. Rather, the events themselves are part of the story and part of the revelation. And in fact, when we get into the New Testament, we discover that the laws have passed away, or perhaps better, the laws have been abrogated. That's an important term. But the principles and patterns contained in the narrative remain in effect. So, for example, 1 Peter 2, 1-12 makes several allusions to this story that we're going to be looking at today, but none to the laws themselves. Listen to what Peter says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 2, 5. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter goes on to talk about holiness, worship, service, and consecration, all important themes in this story in Leviticus, without ever mentioning anything about clothing, anointing oils, seven-day fasts, or animal sacrifice, meaning He has preserved the narrative themes and left the legal specifics far behind. So in a sense, as Christians, we should probably read these three chapters somewhat zoomed out. We need to spot the main themes and emphases without getting sucked into too much speculation about the particular meanings behind the original laws and protocols, much of which has been lost to history anyway. Commenting on the unique uniform provided for the high priest, Gordon Wenham, for example, says here, probably symbolic significance was also attached to individual items in the priestly attire, but that now escapes us, closed quote. So we don't actually know what the particular significance was for many of these laws and protocols. The Bible doesn't record those things, which again further suggests that the abiding relevance lies in the narrative themes, not in the minute details of the liturgical ceremony. These are illustrations in advance. This is the Holy Spirit preparing the people of Israel and preparing us, the readers, to see and recognize our great high priest and to understand what it will mean for us as a worshiping community to join him in his work of redemption and renewal. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. To appreciate the drama in this narrative, we'll have to revisit our overall timeline. The book of Leviticus functions almost as an addendum to the book of Exodus. The first bit of narrative, then, has to be related back to the end of the narrative in Exodus. The book of Exodus ends with a very exciting event. Verses 34 to 35 of chapter 40 say, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Close quote. So, we have a tabernacle, we have a worship center that has obviously been accepted by the Lord. But, do we have a priesthood? You will recall that Aaron has not distinguished himself in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus. While he was not the instigator of the golden calf incident, he was a willing accomplice, and he failed to restrain the people. He has essentially failed as a leader. And so there is some question about his suitability and status moving forward. This narrative has been inserted at least partly to lay those concerns to rest. God is gracious. Though Aaron is a great sinner, he is forgiven through the mediation and petition of Moses, and he is restored to his role as the head of the priesthood. Aaron is often compared in that sense to the Apostle Peter. Peter, too, was a great failure. He denied the Lord three times. And yet, when he repented, he, too, was forgiven and restored. There's a lesson in there for us. Ministry is not for perfect people. It is for sinners who have been forgiven, restored, called, chosen, and equipped. Thanks be to God. So as these first three verses indicate, we do have a priesthood, and so we will need to have an ordination service. Moses will facilitate. He acts as temporary high priest throughout this process, and he will then step back and let Aaron come to the foreground in chapter 9. Verse 4, And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The precise obedience of Moses in chapter 8 and then of Moses and Aaron in chapter 9 is a major theme in this narrative. You will get used to hearing that Moses and then Moses and Aaron did all that the Lord commanded. A connection is being forged between precise obedience and the experience of and enjoyment of God's presence and blessing. That is very important for us to see. Salvation is by grace. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. And we've already talked about that. This story is steeped in grace. See the fact that Aaron is still alive as exhibit A. So yes to grace. But there is a connection underappreciated by modern evangelical Bible readers between obedience and the enjoyment of God's presence and blessing. And this narrative should stimulate our appreciation of that principle. Verse 5, And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. 
And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Once again, I think it will be most helpful for us to maintain a certain magnification throughout this narrative. The main symbols here lie pretty close to the surface. Aaron and his sons are to be washed in water before they begin their service. I think the enduring principle here is fairly straightforward. We can only serve if we are saved. There, there is an order to be observed. We have to be washed before we can begin to live before God as the people we were created and intended to be. As for the clothing, as cited above, Gordon Wenham urges us not to dig too deeply into the original symbolism for the various items. The original audience on that day for this ceremony would have made connections based on their cultural fluency that we aren't capable of making today. And since the Bible doesn't preserve those connections, our speculations will have very limited value. Suffice to say that clothing in the Bible is generally understood broadly as a symbol of for external behavior. We think, of course, of Colossians 3.12, which says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and obedience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. In perfect harmony. So even in the New Testament, we see that clothing is often a symbol of consecrated behavior, consecrated external behavior, the one pointing to and symbolizing the other. So the idea here is that the high priest, and by extension his sons, must set an example of godly behavior as part of their service before the Lord. We are ambassadors, and we must look in some derivative sense like the one we serve. That's a principle that holds true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, as for the anointing oil, there are three that are anointed in the Old Testament, the priest, the prophet, and the king, which explains why it is in the New Testament that we refer to Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, because he is the climactic fulfillment of all three of those scriptural types. He is the ultimate high priest. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate king. Thanks be to God. In verses 14 to 36, we have a description of the consecration offering. As a rule, large cattle were used in sin offerings having to do with the entire community in general and the high priest in particular. And that is what we see here. Verse 14, then he brought the bull of the sin offering 
And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Now, that all sounds a bit strange to our ears. Why would the altar require a sacrifice of atonement? Did, did the altar sin? Is that what's going on here? The JPS Torah commentary says usefully, the sense here is that the altar was consecrated for the purpose of making expiation since expiatory sacrifices required an altar, close quote. So not so much for as so as. This, this is a consecration as opposed to an expiation, or in more street-level terms, this is about preparation more than reparation. The altar hasn't sinned, but the altar must be prepared. Now, I won't comment extensively on the procedures associated with these sorts of offerings, as we've already covered that information in chapter 4, verse 16. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. This is the second of the three consecration offerings. Verse 19, And he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, as I mentioned above, if you're looking for help remembering or understanding the specific procedures mentioned here, you can find that information in the episode on chapter 4. One thing we should mention is the potential symbolism associated with the dabbing of the blood on the right ear, the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot. 
The priests, of course, ministered barefoot within the tabernacle complex. But why these three locations? Is there any obvious meaning to this aspect of the ritual? As we will discover in chapter 14, the application of sacrificial blood to specific parts of the body is an act of purification. Thus, the ritual likely communicates that the priests must be made pure in their thoughts, in their deeds, and in their movements. Andrew Bonner offers a similar explanation. He says, The Lord touches with blood his right ear, right hand, right foot, as if to say, I claim from thee the exercise of every faculty and property of body and soul to be used in my service. From head to foot, he is marked by blood and set apart. Closed quote. Again, while we must be cautious in all of these symbolic associations, that aspect of the ritual seems reasonably transparent. Verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his son and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. Verse 30 describes the final ritual in the ordination ceremony. Moses sprinkles Aaron and his sons and their garments with anointing oil. Priests are anointed ones in the Old Testament. So as of the end of verse 30, we have a priesthood. And now in verse 31, they must begin to fulfill their function. And part of that function was eating their portion of the sacrificial offerings. Baruch Levine says here, It was vital to the efficacy of the ordination sacrifice that the priests actually partake of it. Only in this way would they join in the sacred meal in the presence of the Lord. Close quote. So they eat the sacrificial portion, and then they must quarantine, as it were, for seven days inside the tabernacle complex, not so that they wouldn't infect others, but rather so that they wouldn't be contaminated by others through contact with those who were ceremonially unclean. Verse 33, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Now, scholars differ here. As to whether the sacrifice was repeated on each of the seven days or whether it happened only on the first day. But regardless, this is a very slow, deliberate, and elaborate process. R.K. Harrison says here Hurried, casual, or disorderly worship had no place in ancient Hebrew religious life, whatever might have been the case in the cultic rites of other Near Eastern nations. Quote. So, all of this is by design. It very intentionally departs from the frenzy and crassness 
of the religions and rituals of their pagan neighbors. There's probably an enduring principle in that narrative fact for us as well as modern-day Christians. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary sees further application in terms of principle to the modern-day believer. It says here, This particular procedure is rich in meaning for the Christian priesthood of all believers, consecrated by the blood of Jesus Christ, to hear the word of God, to perform works of grace and mercy, and to walk according to the Lord's guidance. Close quote. I'm not sure how or why you'd want to argue with that. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.